2: This podcast may contain explicit language, which is distinct from shall, and in point of fact, as to this specific episode you're about to hear, actually does not contain explicit language. It's Tuesday, August 30th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And what did a pig ever do to me. You know, I was looking through a list I have of ideas through the show and I was going back actually years and I saw that Jax with an X and Stacia were talking about a dog meat festival and I knew what had gone on. I was taking notes out of self-defense and a means of keeping interested while my wife, you might know her from such credits as The Gist, Wife was watching Vanderpump Rules. Anyway, on Vanderpump Rules, either Vanderpump or Rules or one of the ladies, she's really against dog meat festivals. She protests dog meat festivals. I think she thinks that dog meat eating should be a somber occasion only with family. No, she doesn't. She doesn't want dog meat eating at all. I, I I think in her restaurant, the Vanderpump, I don't know what the restaurant's called. It doesn't matter. She serves pork dishes. Many of us eat pigs, I eat pig, and so I gotta ask, what's a pig ever done to me? Did pigs patrol the fences at Buchenwald? Did Bull Connor set pot-bellied pigs and lose fire hoses in Birmingham, Alabama? No, you know, I eat the pigs, I don't eat the dogs. But you know what else I don't do with dogs? I don't blame the dogs. We do not actually eat dogs just because we've come to love them, but do eat pigs because we love them less. Even though if I were to critique pigs, I would say, if you want to boost your species chance of survival, you might as well, you know, engage in the most brilliant adaptive technology zoology has ever known. Do what dogs do. Make us like them. Lots of groups don't want you to eat pigs and they point out, well, I'll read from the American Humane Association. This is the comparison they make. Pigs are gentle creatures with surprising intelligence. Studies have found they're smarter than dogs. Okay, so now I'm thinking, pigs, dogs? Oh, maybe I'm a little bit of a hypocrite for eating pigs and not eating dogs. But the next sentence, this isn't just the Humane Society, this is everywhere that doesn't want you to eat a pig. They'll say, they're smarter than dogs, And even three-year-old children, stop it. My neighbor Zoe's three. We have conversations, fairly in-depth conversations. She is smarter than a pig. She is smarter than every pig in creation. Even a gifted pig is... Nowhere near as smart as Zoe. I have two children, at least one of them. Ah, uh, you know what? I'm gonna confidently say both were smarter than pigs where they were three. So don't lie to me, humane association. Don't force my hand on the stove and tell me it's bacon. But the thing about why we eat or don't eat, the considerations of who we eat, what we eat, they're not about ruling out those who contain sufficient virtue or good qualities. It has nothing to do with the respect for the intelligence of the species in question. In fact, if you wanna make a blanket statement about intelligence correlating to humanity or morality, humans murder humans all the time. They might not eat them, but you know, Russia goes into Ukraine and commits war crimes and it has nothing to do with how intelligent or unintelligent Ukrainians are. Might have a little to do with the lack of Russian intelligence. Also, starfish, aren't smart, but we don't eat them. Starfish don't even have the intellects of three-year-olds. I think Ukrainians might, especially three-year-old Ukrainians. It all comes down to this. The reason we eat pigs is because they're delicious. And the reason they're delicious is we've bred them to be delicious. Dog festivals, this makes no logical sense, no moral sense, but it also makes little gustatory sense. We do not find dogs delicious. Dogs aren't delicious. In the places in China where they do eat dog, they don't know from delicious. I'm sure they'd much rather eat a pig. So what I'm saying is, I hope this all changes. I certainly do. I hope to one day live in a world where we count pigs as smart, loving creatures who maybe join us in our households who we give names and personalities to. And if real justice is ever to be achieved at that moment, when we're hugging our pet pigs, we'll be eating a labradoodle or two to mark the occasion. On the show today in the spiel, Dan Savage has his say on a woman's issue of the issue of saying women when it comes to the abortion debate. But first, David Cicilline is a Democrat who represents Rhode Island's first congressional district. He has served in that capacity since 2011. He was a manager for a Trump impeachment. We could say a Trump impeachment. And he also holds the distinction of being the first openly gay mayor of a U.S. state capital, leading Providence from 2003 to 2011. The name of his book out now is House on Fire Fighting for Democracy in the Age of Political Arson. Representative David Cicilline up next. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender Family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130, that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender.
3: They sought above all else to seize control of our government in the name of Donald Trump. Let that sink in. The terrorists who stormed this building Plan to hang the vice president, kill the speaker, and topple our government. They took down the American flag and replaced it with a Trump flag. I ask my colleagues on the other side of the aisle who are not planning to vote for this article, is this the kind of country you want to live in?
2: David Cicilline serves Rhode Island's first congressional district in the U.S. House of Representatives. He is the Chair of the Congressional LGBTQ Equality Caucus, vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You may have seen him and recognized the name as he was holding forth like a house on fire during the second Trump impeachment. In fact, that is the phrase of his new book, House on Fire Fighting for Democracy in the Age of Political Arson. David Cicilline, welcome to the gist.
3: Uh, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here.
2: So the book is organized, boom, we start right in the well of the Senate, there you are talking about why Trump should be impeached, which actually worked, technically, if you go by the definition of impeachment, though, you didn't have the Senate votes. And then part two, it doesn't go chronologically, starts with your story, but I'd like to reverse it, if, that, if that's possible, and talk a little bit about who you are and where you came from, okay? Sure. Okay, so... You're from Providence through and through, and your mom's Jewish and your dad's Italian, just like me, and your dad was a prominent lawyer, and I found out some interesting things about him. So tell me what kind of lawyer your dad was.
3: Sure. My dad uh, was and remains a criminal defense lawyer. He's still practicing law at 83. Uh, And you know, I grew up in a very wonderful family, a big, large family. I have four siblings. My mother is Jewish. My father's Italian. Uh, They got married very young. Uh, My parents eloped when they were 16 and 17. And uh, my dad represented people accused of very serious crimes. And it's something sort of I watched as a young person uh, and ultimately became aware of myself.
2: There was a lot, you don't use the M word, which is, uh, okay, I'll, in deference to you, I won't say it, but organized Thank crime you. in Providence was quite pro, uh, prominent. And so any decent defense lawyer is going to have clients who are in the M, the Cosa Nostra, if you will. And your father was no exception, but this led him into trouble and he was prosecuted or attempted to be prosecuted. How many times?
3: Three. Yeah, my father was a very successful criminal defense lawyer, and uh, I think there was a, an effort to stop him from being so successful in the courtroom by actually charging him, and, uh, and really what you'll see if you read the book, sort of trumped up charges against him in an effort really to uh, prevent him from continuing to do the work he was in the courtroom. And it was, for me, an example of uh, the abusive power by the government and something which had a really serious impact on me. uh, And I write about that in the book and a serious impact on my family. He prevailed, of course, and never lost faith in our system of justice. But it reminds me why the institutions of our democracy are so critical and why anyone who abuses power that they have um, is someone that needs to be held to account. And one of the reasons I talk about it in the book.
2: So I mentioned three prosecutions. These weren't for separate incidents. They were all for things like- uh, The same, and it wasn't double jeopardy, or in his case, triple jeopardy, because his first two juries were hung juries, or was the case dismissed along the way?
3: No, they were. The juries couldn't reach a verdict, and there was a mistrial declared in one of the first cases. Um, And it's very unusual. I was a criminal defense lawyer. It's very unusual to have a case, the same case, prosecuted three times. But I think uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Rhode Island understood the kind of a challenge my father was in the courtroom because he was winning case after case after case. And that's how our system of justice is supposed to work. But I think they really stepped over the line in the prosecution of a practicing defense lawyer. They went into his office, they bugged the inner sanctum of a defense lawyer's office, really unprecedented. Um, But, uh, you know, it shaped the way that I think about making sure that we stand up to people who abuse power or abuse their positions.
2: Now, you write in the book, in going after a lawyer the way they did, pursuing three trials and failing miserably, the U.S. attorney for Rhode Island damaged the reputation of the Justice Department and gave everyone who suspected the system was corrupt a reason to think they were right. I want to ask you two questions about that. First is, the U.S. attorney for Rhode Island at the time, am I right? Was that a guy named Lincoln Almond?
3: No, it was a guy named Ted Gale. Oh,
2: okay. Uh, Lincoln was the actual full U.S. deal. Edwin Gale was the actual prosecutor in the case. But Amon became, he later became a governor of Rhode Island and Gail became a judge. I don't know, maybe you went before Gail as a judge.
3: I I did not, but you're right. Gail became a judge. I had uh, stopped practicing by then and Amon became the governor. Did you, so were you in politics when Amund was the governor? Yes.
2: Did you resent him?
3: Well, I mean, look, I I think what they did was wrong. I, I think it was completely unsupported by the evidence. I think it was very clear that it was an effort to prevent a successful defense lawyer from doing his work. And that remained with me forever. I will sort of never um, not be impacted by what they did. It impacted my mom, my siblings, my dad. Uh, It was a terrible experience for our whole family. So, um, you know, you never completely, you know, forgive anyone for kind of causing that sort of uh, disruption in your life.
2: Yeah. And an improper one to go after him three times, you say. Now, I also noted that Sheldon Whitehouse, who's the senator from Rhode Island, took over that position. You know, he wasn't
3: involved in the prosecution.
2: But have you ever talked to him about it?
3: No, I mean, he wasn't involved in it at all. In fact, he was very involved in the early investigation of the former mayor of Providence, Buddy Cianci. So um, he didn't have any involvement or uh, any participation in the decision making in my dad's case. So what I wanted
2: to ask you about that, the sentiment that I just read from your book about the overreach of the government and how it sullied the reputation of the Justice Department, now you are on the other side of that issue, and I don't mean you're a representative of the government. There are people who are citing that exact flaw, that the government overreaches, the government has too many tentacles, and the government is trying to... I don't know that you are specifically alleging uh, politicized government, but the powers of the state are such that we should watch out for how powerful they can be and how much they could disrupt the life of the little guy. And, you know, obviously, Donald Trump says, first, it's me, then it'll be you. So, when you hear that, there may be the sort of uh, elected officials say, no, you're wrong, you're crazy, you're part of a tradition that is just anti government. But I would suspect you wouldn't have exactly that answer to that objection. What do you say? Maybe you meet a constituent in uh, Rhode Island and say, who voices something like the position I just gave voice to. What do you say to that person? Well,
3: I mean, I think that's why it is so important that we have individuals leading. The Department of Justice, who understand the enormous power of their office and the responsibility they have to ensure that justice is uh, meted out in a fair and impartial way. I think that is why lots of people get frustrated with Merrick Garland, but he's been very clear that he will apply the law to the evidence and that uh, he will not permit politics or uh, personal views to interfere in any way. And that's very important. We need to, I think he's done a remarkable job uh, in restoring people's confidence that the Department of Justice is an independent uh, agency of the federal government, that it, he will not allow anyone to interfere with their deliberations or the decision making. And that's critical. And so to me, it's a reminder that what we took for granted a, for a long time in this country. That was so destroyed during the Trump years when the Department of Justice became the personal attorney of the president, uh, used to really advance his own agenda and punish or attack his enemies. That's a dangerous practice and that we all have to work hard to be sure that what Merrick Garland uh, has restored remains free from political interference so they can continue to make judgments based on the evidence and the law.
2: Do you think in your rise in local politics, and we should tell listeners, that you ran against and defeated uh, a legendary, notorious, whatever word you want to use, mayor of Providence, Buddy Cianci, a man who over 27 years was mayor for 25 of them when he wasn't serving, serving time for his misdeeds, which uh, I, I guess many of the voters either didn't mind or thought, thought was colorful. But the fact that your father uh, went through those prosecutions, the fact that your brother uh, was also prosecuted and served time for crimes, though he's been reinstated by the bar. I'm looking at a story from 2007, tale of two brothers, John M. Cicilline indicted his brother. David is the mayor. That's you. Do you think that in Providence, those uh, family forays into illegality hurt you very much were a stumble to overcome or given that Cianci was himself a little or a lot on the shady side they didn't hurt you as badly as they would have in other places
3: yeah I mean I don't I don't think uh I think in Providence and in Burdon I've been very fortunate that people have made judgments based on my uh performance as a as a mayor as a state representative and now as a member of congress i think they've looked at my record the work that i've done my ethical standards uh, and i've been always uh, you know able to earn the support of people who know me and know my work um, i will say that you know my, i'm incredibly proud of uh, my father and i talk about kind of his early work as a civil rights leader working for former mayor dorley at the time Uh, who integrated our schools and uh, responded to a lot of the challenges in the 60s. So um, he also has represented lots of folks who needed counsel. And so, uh, you know, I've been very proud. I think I've benefited tremendously from being uh, David Sicily and coming from the family that I do. And I think uh, I feel really honored to have the privilege of representing Rhode Island. And and I think people have continued to make judgments based on what I've done and what work I've uh, performed. And I think it's been a tremendous advantage, not in any way harmed me.
2: I got the impression you really liked being mayor. Is that
3: accurate? Yes, it was a great job. I did it for eight years. I, tell, I talk to people all the time who are thinking about running for mayor in different places around the country. It's a great job because you have the ability every single day to do things which impact people's lives directly. You never, There was never a day that I was mayor that I wondered, did we make a difference today in the lives of the people we serve? Um, I was certain we did. And that is the kind of joy of local government. It's also one of the great challenges of local government because if you can't do things because you don't have the resources or it's not something that you can provide, you also feel and see that every day because people have a very personal relationship with their mayor in a way that I think is different from a state legislator, from a statewide office holder, or even from a member of Congress.
2: It is for an ambitious politician or a dedicated public servant you graduate from mayor say to federal government congress maybe maybe the state house or maybe the senate but it also seems that in many ways you're trading a job where you could do a lot and get a lot of satisfaction out of it for a job that's
3: unbelievably frustrating is that What's going on in your case? Well, I mean, look, I love being in Congress and I, you know, as I write about in the book, I think this is a really important moment to be in this fight to preserve our democracy. Um, So, you know, my view is obviously you get to work on different kinds of issues at a much larger scale. You also have the ability to really uh, respond to the challenges people face in their lives in the constituent casework that you do. So it's a different job, but it's a it, and it can be very frustrating, but I think for me right now the, the the perils that we are facing in the threats to the functioning of our democracy and whether or not we will survive as a democracy are so real that I tell constituents all the time. Some people call to me and say, "I don't know how you can stand it in Washington." And I always say, you know what? I don't know how you can stand it. I at least have the luxury of getting up every day and fighting to preserve our values, fighting to protect our democracy. And for me, that's a way to cope with these challenges. If I were back in Rhode Island practicing law and just watching this, I would be going out of my mind. And they're like, that's me. So, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. I feel very privileged to be in Congress in this moment, in this very consequential fight.
2: If one were to take Donald Trump off the chessboard, how much would that phenomenon you're talking about, just how our democracy is imperiled, how much would that improve the picture? The very man, one
3: man. uh, Enormously. Look, this is uh, a cult of personality. This is, as I write in the book, this is really a fascist ideology using fear and the, the quest for power above all else the use of propaganda, misinformation uh, to uh, consolidate support. I mean, it's a classic case of undermining our democracy by by attacking the institutions of a free press, of an independent judiciary, of the truth, by promoting lies that uh, show people that they should uh, support a person who is uniquely qualified to respond to, uh, to their loss of uh, power or loss of, uh, of importance. And... He has promoted this thinking from the very beginning. He has undermined the institutions of our democracy. And I think uh, without Donald Trump, I mean, some of the underlying conditions continue to exist, but I think uh, all kind of fascist-like movements require a leader who um, exploits these moments uh, to organize people uh, to both undermine democracy but follow him. So... I think if you remove him from the, from the chessboard, it would do significant damage to the to the disruption of our democracy.
2: But you defeated and succeeded Buddy Cianci, a man who was a thug, a man who wasn't terribly honest, a man who committed crimes, but at least he was held accountable, a man who didn't just threaten physical violence or inspire his uh, acolytes to act on it, who literally smacked around uh, people every now and again. Did you see fascism there or was that a different type of thuggery? Was it a difference of scale or a difference of kind?
3: Yeah, I think I mean, first I I actually didn't defeat him. He decided not to run. Uh, Yes, but your strength was part (laughs) of that. And I was (laughs) the only candidate, announced candidate against him when he made that decision. So, Mm -hmm. uh, but look, I think it it was both a difference in scale, but there are a lot of similarities. There's a part in the book where I talk about one of uh, Sansi's supporters who said, uh, that, uh, you know, Buddy Sienzi could rob a bank at gunpoint, and it wouldn't make a difference to his supporters. It sounds a lot like yeah. I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, and it wouldn't matter. So there are similarities about the use of misinformation and the use of fear uh, and the use of kind of personality, the cult of personality. But the scale uh, for Donald Trump uh, is obviously very different. He served as president of the United States. He created or led a movement across the country. So. It's different, but the use of violence, the use of fear, the use of um, the kind of um, notion of a, a following that didn't didn't care what the leader did, but they remained loyal to him. There's a lot of similarities. And since you uh,
2: had a very accurate and personal glimpse into organized crime would you say there are certainly elements of the don saying things and having his uh words be interpreted by his underlings to protect him but my question is actually you know i've heard it said that when trump is compared to someone involved in organized crime that the difference is well he's not so organized so was that a difference with cianci cianci was politics as organized crime and Trump is a little bit of politics as disorganized crime.
3: Yeah, I mean it's interesting. This the use of the RICO conspiracy in the Sansi case was very often used in organized crime prosecutions because it wasn't uncommon for the organizations that had multiple people involved that that the leader of this effort would be isolated in some way to protect them from criminal liability. We see the same thing with Donald Trump. I mean Nicole Wallace said it best when A couple of years into the Trump term, she said on television, our country is being run by a crime family. And when you look at the way that Donald Trump has attempted to isolate or insulate himself from criminal liability so that he has some plausible deniability, that's a pattern you often see in organized crime prosecutions, which is why the RICO statute was created. So, um, you know, I think we can't lose sight of the fact. You know, I've heard a lot of people this past week in particular who are talking about the the search warrant that was executed at Mar-a-Lago saying this has never happened before that a former president of the United States. And I remind people, it's also never happened before that we had a former president of the United States or a president at the time engage in the kind of misconduct and criminality that he's engaged in. Like, of course, we haven't ever had a search warrant executed because nobody's ever done anything worthy of that uh, yeah. Execution of a search warrant. So yeah, why do we have uh, why do we have unprecedented
2: reactions? Maybe because it's we have unprecedented conduct. Exactly. Yes. 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 David Cicilline is a representative from Rhode Island. He is the author of House on Fire: Fighting for Democracy in the Age of Political Arson. And we will be back tomorrow to talk about the details of that fight in the in- impeachment trial. Join me then. Dan Savage is the author of the syndicated column Savage Love. He is also host of the extremely popular Savage Love cast and he comes here onto the spiel to share some of his insights that he gave to his listeners soon after the Kansas referendum on abortion passed. That referendum Flew a little bit under the radar before it shocked the world. It kind of shocked Dan a little bit too. But in this section of his show, which we bring to you, he talks about the language used for the people who would be affected by an abortion ban. You know those people.
4: Birthing people, pregnant people, people who need abortions.
2: Here on our spiel today, Dan talks about why it's important to use those words.
4: The well-intentioned push to use inclusive language When talking about abortion rights, which means, according to some people, avoiding, in reference to abortion, the word women. Michelle Goldberg was on Ezra Klein's podcast a few weeks ago. She was on my Sex and Politics podcast recently. But Michelle Goldberg said something on Ezra's show that really stuck with me.
0: I mean, I can tell you that most women I know over 40 seethe at the word women being taken out of reproductive rights activism. I mean, I can't tell you how many conversations I have with people about this who are just so angry about it um, because it feels to them like feminism has become another place where cisgender women are supposed to defer. But there is a sense, I think, among a lot of older women that if you can't explain the way that abortion bans are rooted in misogyny, you know, that they're rooted in the kind of fundamental desire to control women's reproduction, then it becomes very difficult to organize, right? Like some people oppress other people on the basis of their reproduction is just not really an accurate way, I think, of describing centuries of patriarchy.
4: One of those women out there seething, one of those women over 40, Bette Midler, who got dragged all over Twitter for saying this a couple of weeks ago. Women of the world, we are being stripped of our rights over our bodies, our lives, and even our name. They don't call us women anymore. They call us birthing people or menstruators and even people with vaginas. Don't let them erase you. Every human on earth owes you. It's confusing who the theys are in Bette Midler's tweet, The people stripping women of their rights, of their bodily autonomy, are not the same people out there urging all of us to avoid using the word woman in reference to abortion rights. And they so urge us because not everyone who needs an abortion is a woman. The they stripping women of their rights, Republicans. The they calling women birthing people, not Republicans. You know, I watched the ads that the group Kansans for Constitutional Freedom put out, the advertising campaign that racked up that 60-40 win on abortion rights in Kansas, and the word woman was all over them, not erased, centered. There's a lot of talk on the left about white women and how white women vote, and white women tend to vote Republican. Not all white women, but a majority of white women. And it seems to me, if there's a word or a way of putting something that causes white women, even lefty white women like Bette Midler, to seethe, maybe hammering away at that term or insisting that everyone use that term and only that term, maybe it's not good politics. I know some Republicans, women and otherwise, and the one thing every Republican I know has in common is that they are constantly scanning the horizon Searching for any excuse to vote Republican. Older women more likely to vote, older white women more likely to vote Republican. Seems to me politically at this moment we don't want to hand them an excuse to vote Republican by insisting or even suggesting that using the term woman in reference to abortion is hateful. Now, we can and we should use inclusive language. I do. Actually, I just did. I say pregnant women all the time. I've done a lot of talking on the show about abortion for years, not just lately, but a lot more lately. A lot of intros on the subject of choice and abortion and Roe and Dobbs, a lot of guests on the show talking about abortion. I say pregnant women. I say women who need abortions. I talk about women's rights. I talk about mothers. Most women who get abortions are already mothers, But I don't just say women. I add once in a while and other people who need abortions, trans men, non-binary, AFABs, agender folks. It's a conscious choice on my part. I did it, like I said, a couple of minutes ago in this intro. I was talking about the women of Kansas, the women living in nearby states. And then I said, quoting myself, abortion should be legal and accessible everywhere for women who need abortions and for trans men and non-binary folks. I think that's inclusive language. I'm pro-inclusion. I'm anti-distortion. And I think eliminating the word women, only using pregnant people, as a guest did on this late political gab fest last week, as reporters and hosts do on NPR constantly, doesn't include, it distorts. The people who are trying to ban abortion, they aren't after trans men or non-binary folks. They don't like trans men or non-binary folks or cis gays or immigrants or really anyone else who doesn't look just like them. The list of people the right doesn't like goes on and on, but they've been fighting abortion rights forever since long before they found out what a trans man was or a non-binary AFAB was. The fight against reproductive choice has always been about controlling women. It's the misogyny, stupid. And they will be delighted. Republican assholes will be delighted if abortion bans also harm some of the trans men and non-binary folks that they just found out about. But women are the target, and we need to use language that makes that clear. And we can, and we can do it without being exclusionary. We can, and we should include. We can't, and we shouldn't do the right wing the favor of obscuring their motive. They aren't attacking people, pregnant or otherwise, when they attack reproductive freedom. They're attacking women. And I know that we, on the left, can keep the focus on the real targets of one discriminatory law or a long discriminatory campaign because we're already doing it. Voter suppression, removing polling places from minority areas, making it harder for black people to vote, passing voter ID laws, and then making it harder for voters to get IDs. We have no problem talking about these laws, these efforts, these voter suppression campaigns as explicitly racist. The target African-American voters who overwhelmingly vote Democratic. But you know what? Some white people don't have IDs. Some white people live in areas where polling places have been yanked, shut down to prevent black people from voting. If every time we talked about voter suppression efforts and called them anti-black and racist, some lefty burst through the wall like the Kool-Aid man and said, you can't call these laws racist. You can't say black voters are the target because some white people aren't going to be able to vote too. Even though that Kool-Aid man lefty jerk would be technically right, he would be missing the point. So yeah, let's include, but let's not distort. Let's use inclusive language, but let's be strategic and proportionate. And let's be political, because this is a political war. Because those women Goldberg was talking about, all those seething women over 40 who seethe when they hear the phrase pregnant people, which no woman in Kansas heard in the run-up to last week's vote, we need them. We need as many of their votes as we can get. And it would therefore then be politically savvy of us to be careful about when we use language that alienates those voters that we need. We're moving away from gendered language. I'm all for moving away from gendered language, but we're not going to be past it by November of this year or November of 2024.
2: And that's it for today's show. Thank you to Corey Wara, assistant producer, and Joel Patterson, senior producer of The Gist, and as always, Michelle Pesca, whose actual title is COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com/slash/the-gist. peru, do peru. And thanks for listening.
1: Ah, mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice.